Ossert would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and any First Nations people listening today. We also want to acknowledge that these lands have always been places of learning and sharing of information, and that is the essence of this podcast. Welcome to the Oxford Podcast. Share today, save tomorrow. I'm your host, Anthony Caruana, and this month I'm joined by Mike Pritchard. It's a real treat to chat with Mike and see some of the amazing artifacts he brought along. Mike's been collecting hardware that helps us understand the history of cyber with devices dating back over 100 years. His passion for understanding the history of our industry is infectious. Then it's over to my co-host Beck, who chats with OzCert's Mark Carey-Smith about what's happening at OzCert, preparations for next year's conference, the mentoring program for presenters, the arrival of OzMISP, and other exciting news that's coming up. Today, I'm joined by Mike Pritchard. How are you doing today, Mike? Very good, thank you. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about where you're from, what you do as your day job? Because your day job's not what we're going to really talk about today, but just so people know kind of where you've come from. And what yeah, I've, I've been, I guess, about 30 years in IT or IT-adjacent areas, and for the last 13 years, I've worked particularly in cyber, mainly for large American vendors, and then about 18 months ago was, I guess, at two levels, thinking of, you know, how do you, how do you give back? To the industry later in career. So I made a decision to join an Aussie startup, which turned out to have been a great decision. Uh, they're a little company called Sidearm. There's only about 18 of us and we focused on fixing, frankly, really hard problems in the SOC that are not, you know, kind of detection problems or prevention problems, but they're more kind of process and people based. And that's, it's interesting because when we start to talk about the problems of modernity and the things that we've kind of brought into our world now as new challenges, it, what we're really going to talk about today has got nothing to do with the challenges of today, specific or directly, but we want to talk about history a little bit. And really why I've asked you onto the podcast today is to talk about your passion project. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about what that is? And forgive people who are listening in, but there is a slightly musty smell in the room today as we're recording because we've got a really interesting pile of stuff next to us that dates back, some of it at 60 or 70 years, to so the foundations of what we call the computer industry today. Yeah, so... So I bought in a couple of items for Anthony to have a little preview of, one of which is a, a working 1940s cipher machine, a Swiss Enigma. That's where the smell's coming from. I've had other people look at it who've served in the military and they take one smell and they go, wow, it smells like a quartermaster store or weapons. Yes, it does. I've also bought in an original Atani machine rotary uni selector. So those rotary switches were originally built for telephone exchanges. But of course, to reverse engineer German cipher machines and create analogs to those machines, they had to assemble them out of what was the most sophisticated technology at the time, which was telephone switches. So I have some original switches from the from the Tunney machine project at Bletchley Park. And then finally, I bought in some books and a Captain Crunch whistle that relate to the birth of phone freaking. So some pivotal things that go right to the heart of one, cryptography, Two, you know, secret messaging, I guess, and and code breaking and the birth of the first computers, which were built to crack Enigma, and then to the birth of phone freaking. The interesting thing here is that, you know, we were talking before the podcast started and, you know, you're showing me some stuff that was in a manual. And at the time, no one really thought about using the whistle out of a cereal box. But the, the US phone company gave the instructions on how to do this effectively, didn't they? Like... Yeah, they, they published 
1960. So Bell used to publish every year a, a huge, very significant body of technical information that would be distributed across the US to all of the operating companies. It was the best way to communicate with technical people at the time. What they didn't figure on, of course, was that there was a whole community of freaks like you and I out there who, who just who just love technical information and who are going to these libraries and consuming this information. The other thing they didn't know was that there was a community of blind people out there who relied on, on free telephone calls to be able to communicate over distance. And they had like their own little network to distribute information. And so once they published the information on how the 2600 single frequency switch, that was the name of the equipment, the 2600 switch, how that worked, it basically told an audience that if you can generate a tone of 2600 hertz on the phone network, it puts the switch into kind of receive and operator mode, and then you could be off to the races and be, be requesting free calls, free trunk calls. And, and it's interesting because when we think about now the effort that's made by um, you know cyber criminals and, on, and online criminals, they're often reverse engineering systems and processes that exist out there now. But like in the 60s, then you didn't have to reverse engineer it. Someone gave you the book on how to, gave you the manual almost. Well, well that's true. I mean, organisations nowadays are, are reasonably careful with things like, you know, network diagrams and whatnot. But the truth is, is often the case that the network diagram published on the wall is out of date. You know, the, the staff inside an organisation often know less about the real-time state of their network than the attackers who are discovering it in real time. You know, someone would have eventually figured out how the phone network worked, but Mar Bell just made it really easy by publishing all the documentation. <laughs> and, of course, the, the good folk at the serial company did their part by providing a whistle that blew at exactly the right frequency. That's right. And the famous Captain Crunch phone freaker at the time, who I think was also a friend of Steve Jobs at the time, or he made friends with Steve Jobs, because I remember the stories of Jobs and Wozniak doing this at college and making free phone calls. I think they rang the Vatican once by. Well, they, they, they actually read about the exploits of this group. And because they were at college at the time, they realized that there would be a ready market for tone tone generators. You know, there was a period in the 80s, I remember you could go into Radio Shack or wherever and you could buy a little tone generator, which made it a lot easier to call your voicemail remotely and things like that. But before that, Jobs and Woz built what's called a blue box, which was a little a little thing around about the size of a cigarette packet with a, with a tone dialer and a little speaker. And you could use that to exploit the phone system to not only generate the initial tone, but then to dial the number. Yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty nice. incredible. And that was actually, here's a little, because I know you, you love your Apple gear. When they sold that box, they, it was actually their first revenue stream. And they used the money out of that to then fund further development in Apple products. So astonishingly enough, <laughs> that was their Kickstarter funding. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So, I mean, this stuff's really amazing. And I love it. Like I, we were talking before, I... You know, I've hung on to a few things that I think one day are at least items of interest to me. And I've been involved in the creation of a of a museum collection in Melbourne, which has collected a whole bunch of really interesting computer-based artefacts that's now part of the permanent collection at, that, at the Melbourne Museum. Why do this? Like, you know, but what's in it for you? Well, there's no money in it for me. And, you know, people who look at my collection pretty quickly realise that it's a very significant investment. I, I guess I'm, I'm later in career and candidly, you know, IT and, and cyber have been really good to me in a couple of ways. You know, I've, I've kept a job and I've, I've had some wonderful clients and interesting projects. Frankly, I've never been bored. There's a lot to be said for a job where you just literally cannot be bored. And I think... I, I realized I'd been going to many conferences like this one, OzCert, and I would sit in the audience, and here's the thing, I'm not a programmer. I can't fix the deeply technical, intractable problems that are out there. I can't write a vulnerability scanner, I can't contribute to the Metasploit program, 
But I sat there and there's this whole other set of intractable problems. One, how do we recruit more people into the industry? How do we include equity? How do we increase equity? How do we convince kids to take up STEM, which goes on to cyber and computing careers, almost as a natural outcome? I'm not saying that everyone who goes into cyber has to have done STEM, but it gives them more options, right? And as I sat there, this, this idea started crystallizing that, that in cyber, another unique problem that no one has really addressed is that we deal every day with the invisible and the ephemeral. You can't capture cyber, you can't bottle it, right? And so when we go out to educate the wider public, you know, the, the accounting firms, the legal firms, the construction firms, and try and educate them about risk, we can't actually show them anything physical that makes it real and tangible. And this idea started crystallizing in my mind that, you know, there's this, what's called the dark territory. There was a great book by Carrera called Dark Territory, which talked about how espionage technology actually led to the birth of computers. But by the time I read that, I'd already been to Bletchley Park and NSA and, and seen this kind of stuff up front. And I thought, you know, nobody has ever gone back in time, starting from the mindset of a cyber person and gone back in time and collected all of the espionage gear that gradually evolved in multiple technology streams towards digital. So how did cameras move toward digital? And I'm talking specifically spy cameras. How did radios and bugs and recorders and intercept equipment, how did all of that stuff within its own domain become digital? And then boom, the point of fusion with, with mass available computers in the 70s, and suddenly we have Turing's universal machine, a reprogrammable general purpose computer that can handle all kinds of digital information. And so I kind of decided that since the government wasn't gonna go out and build a spy museum in this country, I'd just go and do it, and I'd go and collect all the stuff that we need all the way back to Enigma and beyond. And I've discovered things like, you know, Intercept actually goes all the way back to the US Civil War. So mm. I've got gear from the US Civil War, World War One what I call the steampunk spooks period, World War II, and especially the Cold War, because the Cold War has so much direct influence on the geopolitical and the technical landscape today. That's really what it's about. And so do you have an acoustic coupler hiding in your collection? Sure, yeah. I love it. You know, I had the opportunity to speak to a, a former diplomat, let's call them a diplomat, mm -hmm. that worked in, in, in Leningrad for a part of their career. Mm -hmm. And he talked about how they managed to collect the data from, do you remember the, the IBM typewriters that had a bit of memory in them and they had a little little LCD screen? Yeah. And they managed to pull the data out of those, out of the memory of those computers and they used an acoustic, acoustic coupler out of, out of Soviet Russia to then send that information into the United States to the hands of people over there that were interested in such things. And it's, you kind of go back and you think, wow. I mean, the, the stuff that we're talking about now is... The techniques have changed, but the goals haven't, which is collect data, exfiltrate it, and then use it for advantage. And whether you talk about the good guys doing it or criminals doing it, the modus operandi is quite, it's quite similar, isn't it? Well, yeah, you're exactly right. So, so just, just back to the reason why first, and I'll come back to that. My why is that I feel that we are at a distinct disadvantage as an industry that we can't make what we do real for our consumers in the wider public, right? And, and someone has to do that. And, you know, I don't have a God complex, right? Clearly, I don't think I'm the only person, but I thought if I bootstrap this thing and then get other people on board as people get excited and want to get involved, that'd be a great thing to do. The other thing is I feel like we owe this tribute to the people, the, the, bright, the bright minds who won World War II 
and who protect us today while we sleep. Now, for obvious reasons, they can't talk about their work and I will never approach them directly. But I thought if I can, if I can kind of bootstrap this idea of a spy museum in this country, because there are great ones in Europe and Germany and the US, they're all in the, in the Northern Hemisphere. And that doesn't help us as a Southern Hemisphere Five Eyes country, you know? So this thing is, is not me trying to be some wannabe James Bond. This is my tribute to, the, to those people, the bright minds, the engineers, the linguists, the mathematicians, the technicians who, who protect us. Back to the motivations of the attacker, though, you, you are exactly right. What I'm illustrating through this collection is that cyber is the natural evolution and extension of traditional espionage, right? We, I've, I've noticed that cyber people tend to talk about nation-state attackers as though they just fell out of space in the last couple <laughs> of years. But in fact, you know, Boris learned from Stepan, who learned from Petter, who learned from Alexander. Like, we, you go back 100 years and their, their motivations and the overall picture of their operational manual hasn't changed. And they have four broad motivations. You know, we talk in intelligence about how there's, there's mice, you know, money, ideology, compromise, and ego. And you can see all of those at work in, in the famous spy cases. And you know what? Some of those apply to cyber criminals today. Not all of them, but some of those apply to cyber criminals today. And those are some of the themes that we draw out when we look at this gear as well, and when we think about threat actors. So when we start looking back through the history of espionage, and it's interesting when you talk about espionage, and I sit there thinking, I mean, the Romans sent spies. Mm. I mean, if you you know, if you pick up any historical text, you will read about spies going back thousands and thousands of years. The idea of trying to steal data is not new, but when we look back at history, and you start looking back through machines like the Swiss Enigma machine that you've brought in, um, that's over there, which I'll probably I'll do my very best not to clock you on the back of the head to steal, <laughs> but. When we look at that gear, some people will look at it with skepticism and say, hey, it's a nice artifact, but doesn't help us today. What can we learn by looking back at some of this gear? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I've thought about that. And so let me just rewind and just make a point. We're almost unique as an industry that we do not have a cultural center or a library or a museum of where we came from. Don't you think that we're a disadvantage? Because if young people come to you and they go, hey, Anthony, why should I join the cyber industry? What's in it for me? Okay, you can sit them down in front of a computer and show them some software, but there's, where do they go to actually see the inputs and outputs from our industry? You can't show them anything. You know, we talk about how in cyber, on a good day, nothing happens. You know, that, that just doesn't make for riveting entertainment. <laughs> like, you know, I can see how in the US, the International Spy Museum is creating excitement in young people to want to do STEM and cyber. That is directly relevant because it helps create workforce. I think a very, very powerful way to encourage people into government service and into cyber careers. So there's the recruitment angle. I think also it's just career enriching to understand where you came from. You know, where do we come from? What are we, what are we about? Who is our nation state opponent? Where did they come from? I also, I didn't bring in these artifacts, but I have a big collection of things like original Stasi documentation that explains how they organised themselves and their tradecraft. You know, mm. that is directly applicable to what we see today. Would it be oversimplifying things if I said what we're really talking about when we talk about cyber and what's going on in the world today? Is it kind of like espionage for the, for the non-military or espionage for the masses? Is that, you know... Well, Is that I, kind of what we're thinking about? Well, there's, there's clearly a direct line for kind of state-sponsored attacks against other governments, right? Yeah, but that's, that, but that's existed since time immemorial. But that's my point, right? right? Cyber is just the latest evolution of that. But the thing is, you need to understand when the wall came down and basically the, the Soviet 
military was effectively, you know, leaderless, rudderless there for a while. Huge numbers of people hit the streets and were unemployed, right? Missile technicians, programmers, project managers, you, you know, all of these people like, how do I make an income now? How am I going to feed my family? And sure, you know, for the first 10 years, they weren't really organized and the, and the internet wasn't there to catch them. But as soon as it became available, man, let me tell you, there is some hardcore low-level programming skill available in Russia that, that is looking for work. And you know what? Candidly speaking, when the wall came down, they believed that, that the US and our countries were going to help them. And they actually, they sort of almost naively believed we were going to help them. And when we didn't, they were very disenchanted and very unhappy. We kind of showed them the worst side of capitalism before we showed them the best side. And, and that's interesting because the idea that tomorrow's cyber criminals or tomorrow's threat actors is probably a better way of presenting because people involved in this don't, don't often see themselves necessarily being criminal. No. They see themselves as earning a living. Yeah. So if you talk about the threat actors that we're concerned about today, is their origin typically in the revolutions of yesterday? You know, when something massive changes that causes a mass of people who are highly skilled and now motivated through hunger, is that where we can actually look ahead and say... Maybe that's where the next, you know, the next front of threat actors are going to come from. It used to be the case that individuals had to be highly skilled themselves, but the commoditization of malware and the building of malware economies means that the individual operators themselves don't necessarily have to be highly skilled, but they can be very manipulative people. You know, they, they can talk people into then engaging with the next level person who has got technical skill. You know, when you when you phone that number that arrives in that malicious SMS, when you phone that number, you're landing in the malware factory's call center, mm. right? And you land at the desk of a manipulator and that manipulator ratchets up the urgency and the fear and then you get handed to someone more senior who does the implant on your machine. So, you know what I mean? There's a tiering of skills there. Yeah. Mm. So what is it that we can learn? Like when you we look back at all this gear and we look at that, you know, there's obviously the historical thing of around spycraft and so forth that you've talked about before. Is there is there something more tangible that we can learn from that? For example, are there things we can learn from an Enigma machine that help us solve modern problems? That's an interesting one. I mean, you know, I know I know some people who are involved in kind of cryptography and mathematics for a day job. Like clearly, you know, for them it's just a neat problem to to look at which has already been solved. But wrapped around that are things like, you know, how do you, how do you create and destroy keys? You know, how do you maintain message integrity and secrecy? You know, how do you motivate your staff not to betray you? You know, there's all of those kind of things which have direct correlations. I agree with you 100%. The, the actual technologies that are, that are 80 years old are almost kind of a bit of a, a novelty and a curiosity, but people, they still find them damn cool. You know, what's, what's interesting I find is, Cyber people, you know, in their day job, they're like, nah, no, nah, we're not impressed by blinking lights, but you show them some 80-year-old blinking lights, oh, man, they're interested. Right? Oh, yeah. Look, I've got to say, one of the funnest things I did was I went to the went to the Kennedy Space Center a few years ago, yep. and they have a replica there of the old mission control from the Apollo missions. Cool, right? And it's so much fun watching, especially when the light comes up on parks on yep. the screen. You know, the parks telescope theoretically is active at that moment and giving yeah. the, the, the radar the radio array but but there are there are analogies through all of this stuff right and and what's been interesting is i've done a couple of talks with shanna daly the incident i love shanna she's a great friend right there, there there this is the thing this this industry is full of incredibly bright people and and this is my tribute back to these people is the gift of being able to show them and say look there's all this stuff we do today that has to do with you know ransomware ransomware's analog in the old days was compromat 
Hmm. Right? I would get compromising photographs of you. I would get leverage over you. I would create urgency, blah, 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 blah. And, and so for many of today's techniques, there are kind of old school analogs and it's fun to explore them. I don't pretend to know them all, but what, what's actually been a joy for me is to take these items and show them to people and the cyber community works it out pretty quickly. You know. So I have one, one last question. I'm, I'm not sure if this is a, you know, a fair question to you, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Hmm. The, the we have the mo- the movie that was made a few years ago about Alan Turing at mm. Bletchley Park. Yeah. And the the reason they were able to solve the German cryptography and understand how to break the break that code was because they discovered that there was a common phrase at the beginning of every message mm-hmm. about the weather. Mm-hmm. Was that true? It's it's one of the factors. There's really three key factors and I'll, I'll I'll make this really fast. The first one is that the before the war the Germans accidentally sent a machine to the wrong address in Poland. And then they started demanding that the Poles wouldn't open the box, which, of course, piqued their their curiosity. They opened the box and pulled it apart. And and so we actually got a a good look at the latest generation Enigma. The second one is the actual transport, I guess, what you're talking about. Um, You know, the Germans occasionally made just just straight out handling errors. They wouldn't reset keys and things like that. And, And those created what's called a depth, which makes it easier for crypt analysts to work on the traffic. And the third thing is the actual secret material, the daily settings which were meant to change and never be reused. Some incredibly brave British crews and whatnot would run onto German ships as they were sinking and manage to grab enigmas and more importantly, the code books that went with them. And if you had the code book, of course, then you didn't only have today's settings, you couldn't only crack today's traffic, but you could crack it for the next few months or what have you. So is this a case of the movie was slightly more exciting yeah, yeah. than the reality. Look, the movie's great. It's it they they do a good job, but of course they have to radically simplify the story into just about eight characters to make it <laughs> to make it consumable. The truth is, there were thousands of people working at Bletchley Park, and it will be of interest to your listeners to know that about two thirds of the staff are actually women. Hmm. Amazing, a problem we're still trying to solve today. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, as the, the Hollywood the what the Hollywood version of this is that they took a complex novel and turned it into twitter they did the other the other the other thing that's happened is since that movie came out the price of enigma machines has absolutely zoomed yeah excellent so one final question for you that we're asking everybody this season of the ozset podcast which is called share today to save tomorrow Hmm. what do you wish you'd known what, what do you wish you knew 10 years ago (laughs) <laughs> well, two things. Just to allude to that previous point, I wish I'd known that Enigmas were going to go eightfold in 10 years. That would have been a good good thing to know. On a, on a work side, I guess it's it's terribly unfortunate down the track to, to know that we knew that IP was fundamentally broken and vulnerable years ago, and we still haven't fixed that. And everything else is built on top of that piece of junk. And I wish that I had a really neat way to be able to solve that. And and if I had a time machine, it could go back 10 years ago and be arm wavy about it and had some sort of power, then I'd go, for God's sake, guys, we've got to fix this open IP problem and build some security into that. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today, Mike. Okay, thank you. And now it's over to Beck and Mark. Thank you, Anthony. Another month is upon us and I'm joined once again by the lovely Mark Kerry-Smith. How are you today, Mark? Great, Beck. How are you? I'm really good. I want to pick up a little bit of the theme that we had there from Mike Pritchard. And thank you, Mike, for being a guest on our podcast. I really like his way of you know, contributing and giving back. And I think that's a big focus that we have at OzCert generally in our day to day. That's how we like to make our decisions based on those sorts of ways that we can give back and contribute to the community and industry, which I think is a really nice tie into next year's conference theme of pay it forward. 
So I thought we could talk a little bit about what that is. I know some people have taken it quite literally, that it is something that you're going to do. You know, you're going to buy someone coffee in the queue in front of you, you know, that kind of <laughs> stuff. But can you explain a little bit about how, you know, the many hours that OzCert team met and discussed and got to the point of pay it forward as a concept? Yeah, well, like like with previous years, you know, we kick around ideas about different ideas that members of the team have about what the conference theme could possibly be. And look, I don't remember. I don't remember much <laughs> in general. I don't a bit remember. Of a blur. <laughs> yes, but I do remember thinking it just felt right. You know, that the whole idea of pay it forward is is to me it's like a little a little piece of kindness, a little thing, a little way that people can be kind to one another. And it just for me it perfectly suited the the philosophy that we have in terms of contributing to community, nurturing and creating community and then, you know, giving back. It always surprises me because it, it happens every year that we all get a sort of a th- an undercurrent of a theme mm. very quickly. There's like, what is the message? What are we really trying to achieve? You know, what do we hope people are doing? And so we got that caring and that sharing and that kind of idea. But then it's like, how do you sum that up in one phrase and yeah so that's the part that takes the longest time Mm. so I guess what are some ideas that you know I'm a I'm a speaker how am I paying it forward what's my what's my conference presentation about Mm. that's a great question well to start with I guess the whole idea of speaking at a conference like our conference where we carefully curate the topic and the themes and the the presenters and what they're going to talk about you know we put a lot of time and effort into ensuring that not just each individual presentation or tutorial has some merit and that we think will contribute to the community but will also fit within the vibe it's the vibe man the vibe that we're trying to create for like, that got specific this colors <laughs> well exactly it all it all fits together when it works it all fits together and that's what mm. we try and achieve so just being a, a presenter or a person running a tutorial is giving back in its own way. Yeah, sharing your knowledge. Yeah, exactly. So at a macro level, that's really what we're talking about. At a, at a micro level, I guess you could say that there are lots and lots and lots of elements of cybersecurity that are about contributing to others, not just from the perspective of helping organisations and individuals achieve their objectives, which is a giving thing, an empowering thing at its best, but also that individuals can contribute individuals, sorry, individuals can contribute knowledge to other individuals. And it also includes things like the ripple effect that can be created through progressive and active cybersecurity awareness and culture activities. So we've got that ripple of spreading out of, of influence in a positive way. And but that could also be, I've got IOCs or I've got technical information, right? That, yeah. that ripple effect of sharing and protecting other people. Exactly. So the whole idea of threat intelligence being greater than the sum of its parts, the ability for people, if they have the capacity, the knowledge, the time, the information, to be able to not just be a read-only participant in, in some sort of threat intelligence community, but being able to contribute back to that that's also another example of how we can individually and collectively pay it forward. Perfect. 
So I, I think there's a really important step here. There's a lot of people that are hesitant about presenting. They've never presented before. They're mm. nervous to, to try. Do you want to talk about a few of the, the things that we have coming up that are going to help people that haven't presented before or would just want a little help along the journey? Yeah, so we're doing a webinar on 5th of December entitled, I don't know what to talk about, is that right? I don't have anything to talk about. Pretty we're close. Really close. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty close. And that obviously, you know, nicely captures the sentiment that we sometimes hear from people individually. Well, I'd love to, I'd love to do a presentation, but I, I don't have anything to talk about it. But when you start to unpack with people... And that's best done through conversations to say, okay, well, what have, what have you been working on that's interesting? Or do you have any ideas about what you'd like to share? Even if they're ill-formed, and people usually have a bit of an idea, or they might have been kicking around an idea for years and haven't had the, the opportunity, and sometimes haven't had the confidence more than the opportunity to give it a go. So the webinar is a great way to share that wisdom. Who's on that webinar? The amazing Lydia is helping us again. She ran the webinar for us last year. From uh, At least she's in the country this year, which is really nice. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm hoping that you're going to be part of that webinar as well. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> I like to get Mark to commit when he's recording something, so I've got it as proof afterwards. <laughs> that sounds great, Peg. <laughs> Good plan. The other part we have there is the, the mentoring program. Something we hatched last year, wasn't it? Mm. This year? Anyway. For this year's conference, we decided that it'd be a really great thing to be able to individually support speakers who, again, might have a brilliant idea but need a little bit of assistance or need a little bit of a confidence boost to get them up on stage. And the thing that I found really interesting was some of the people that I helped were already experienced presenters but just wanted to do the best they could so they just wanted a little bit of feedback or guidance about yeah, what they were great, going to yeah, cover. You don't have to be a first-time presenter to need a mentor. That's a great point. Yeah. And it's a... Look, for those that, you know, have been thinking about presenting at a conference or might have might have presented at some meetups or something smaller but are ready to take that next step to a larger stage, also it's a really great environment in which to take that step because it's very, very supportive. Everybody wants you to succeed and we do our best as an organisation to facilitate that. So what happens if I'm going to sign up for a mentor? What are you, how are you going to help me? What do we, what's the process look like? Well, loosely the process is having a bit of a chat about the person's ideas, what they're trying to achieve, maybe having an actual proofread of the presentation if they're up to that stage. So it really, it's, it's, it's tailored to suit each person participants need so some people have already written the presentation or written the first or a second draft some people have an idea the idea which is in their mind but haven't put it on paper and then we can help flesh that out a bit and get a bit of a feel for what might work fantastic i really love that program i know a lot of people enjoyed like just being mentors not just the people that were needing help but actually you know in the pay it forward Guys, it's really nice for our team that have that offered that mentorship to people as well. Yeah, that's right. So the mentors are drawn from our broader conference committee, yep. which is made up of OSCERT and University of Queensland staff and friends of OSCERT. It's a really nice, big, diverse people group. People that I tap on the shoulder and say, please help us. <laughs> people that we all tap on the shoulder. 
And I think it's one of those things, if you've never been a mentor for someone, it's easy to underestimate how rewarding it can be to actually just help someone. I did hear from a few mentors this year when they went to see their person present how you know how proud they were and see how far they'd come from those first rehearsals or um, trials of the content and to see them deliver it yeah it's a really nice journey to see them through yeah yeah and it's a really nice way to make connections with people too that you otherwise may not have met yeah good point what we haven't noticed paid attention to is that all of our presenters get free accommodation registration and travel so for a lot of people it's a great way to have the conference be more accessible if you can't get support internally for management to send you to the conference as a business expense will cover your expenses yeah totally and that that was actually my gateway into being a presenter many years ago when i used to work for a state government department where the competition for getting osset tickets was extremely fierce yeah exactly guarantee your spot (laughs) yeah i figured out that if i was a presenter then it was a smooth gateway to being able to... <laughs> they weren't going to say, no, you can't go. <laughs> exactly. Well, they could, but but yeah, it's a, it's just a really great opportunity. And it, it gives you a feel for the conference that you don't get without being an actual contributor. I mean, everybody contributes there with the way that they behave and the interactions they have with other people, everyone. But when you're running a shoot or giving a presentation, it's next level... Yeah, I I have to say I thank everybody that gives us their time and their effort and their expertise. And that's why we do cover the costs that are involved because that's our way of contributing back to to that time and effort. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, also it's a non-profit, so we don't have a lot of dough, but we're... That's how we use our sponsorship money of the conference, back for the conference. Yeah, so in a way we're paying paying it forward too, to be able to encourage people to, to contribute and be part of a community. Yeah. So call for presentations close on the 29th of January. So you don't have to get them in before Christmas. I know a lot of us are tired. I'll put my hand up. So yeah, I guess plan it around your holidays if you're taking leave in January. Hopefully you put it in beforehand. But otherwise, maybe thinking about that over the Christmas break, about what your planner and your idea is. And and it's Mm. a nice time to sort of flesh out those ideas. Mm. Yeah, that's right. And all the information is, of course, on the conference website at conference.ozcert.org.au. Great. Now, there is other things that happen in Osset besides the conference. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it when we get busy with these things. So we have launched a new service in the last few weeks, which is OzMisp. Some of our members have been on that for quite some time as the pilot, and our higher education people are also on their own ASET, AHEX MISP instance, so that's quite different. But for everybody else, that's just been launched, and I, I know that we're hearing some good feedback about that as well. Yeah, that's right. I've heard from you know people I know personally that they were super keen to start benefiting from that threat intelligence feed and to hopefully for some people if they're able to give back that'd be even better but we're just really happy for anyone to to gain benefit from that information yeah so on top of actually access to MISP, we do have a user guide that's available in the member portals to step you through the tags and and how that works as well as some great little um, videos where we step you through the the platform as well which so we've got a a bit of um, a way to get you on get you started yeah that's great you know it's it's always good to have that little bit of a a step up a leg up if you like to give people a bit of a helping hand through something which is an unknown at first yeah and I guess a little teaser to bring it back to conference is we do have our team from circle which is the Luxembourg cert who wrote MISP 
with mm. the creators. So they'll be joining us at the conference delivering a tutorial and a presentation. So a good chance for you to start embracing Osmisp and see if you can run with those skills a bit further at the conference. Mm. Awesome. Lovely. I think that's enough from us. Thanks for joining me, Mark. My pleasure. See you next month. Thanks for listening to this episode of Share Today, Save Tomorrow, the OzCert podcast. And special thanks to Mike, Beck, and Mark. We'll be back next month with the next episode of Share Today, Save Tomorrow with a new guest and a look into the Australian cybersecurity scene. If you want to know more about OzCert, be sure to visit ozcert.org.au.